I want to be a YouTuber. I am seven years old and I want to be a doctor when I grow up because I can cure the sick people. Ray, what words come to mind when you think of the healthcare system? Bed pan. Wow. Bedpan. Bedpan. Okay. I know you said you said word, but or words. Okay. No words. It, it works. Words. But yeah, bedpan, literally. Okay, bedpan. <laughs> what about you though? <laughs> what do you think of when you hear healthcare? Um, the first thing I think of is wait times. Take a guess. How much time do people spend on average waiting in an emergency room before they're admitted? Two, three hours tops? Longer? Yeah. Like how much longer? Double that time? So oh, yeah, double it. So and six, then six, six, six hours? Mm, more. Like a work shift, eight hours. Like I get paid to wait. Mm, you're going to have to work overtime, my friend. Are you serious? Yeah. More than eight hours. 16 hours. So that is according to Health Quality Ontario. They are a government task force. They released a report uh, with that stat in it in November 2018. And in February 2019, the government announced it's going to create a healthcare super agency to provide more integrated care and make the system easier to navigate. Another way we could create efficiencies and possibly reduce wait times could be using new technologies. Um, Robots, say automated pharmaceutical dispensing, 3D printed medical devices, artificial intelligence enabled systems. There are all kinds of things, don't you think? I'm all for using technology to reduce wait times and get people the help they need faster but I'm about the jobs, so I'm asking this, at what cost? We're going to look at the future of Canadian healthcare and new opportunities for work. It's pretty exciting. I'm pretty excited about this. Hopefully we don't have to wait too long. <laughs> hey Welcome to Work Shift. Um, there are going to be future jobs. So in other words, we're going to have to train students for jobs that don't even exist right now. But there's also a whole bunch of jobs that are being recombinated based on what we see currently. There's going to be medical roboticists, uh, which marries both the practice of medicine and engineering. That is someone who will actually help out with um, the actual insertion of robots in the hospital setting. Medical robots. What do you think, Ray? Sounds interesting. In fact, I'm actually now just getting used to my little Roomba. Oh. Little cute Roomba. (laughs) Digital disruption. The gig economy. Artificial intelligence. Robots. There's a lot of talk about these things in the media and online, but what do they mean for you? I'm Sean McEwen. And I'm Ray Harapal. We're exploring the future of work and changes you can expect to see at your job. We'll tell you how this massive digital shift could change your career and what you can do to adapt, evolve, and thrive. Today we're talking to Dr. Corey Ross about emerging healthcare technologies and trends and what that will mean for jobs in this sector. Corey started out as an anatomy prof and has gone on to have an extensive research career attracting more than $5 million in research grants and publishing more than 50 papers in peer-reviewed journals. He did his Master's of Business Administration in the UK and was a hospital administrator before moving into the education sector. Corey is a fellow of the UK-based Royal Society for Public Health. 
In 2015, he was granted member laureate status by the Bethune Medical Development Association of Canada. He's currently VP Academic at George Brown College. Well, healthcare is currently undergoing a phenomenal transformation. Um, and actually, it's twofold. Um, there are going to be future jobs. So in other words, we're going to have to train students for jobs that don't even exist right now. But there's also a whole bunch of jobs that are being recombinated based on what we see currently. And so I'll read a list of some of the things that are, are happening that makes it a very exciting time to enroll in health science uh, courses and programs because there are going to be a lot of new types of jobs that are going to really help the healthcare system push itself uh, in terms of its quality and in terms of delivering much better patient care and client-centered care. So some of them are a little obvious. There's going to be medical roboticists, uh, which marries both the practice of medicine and engineering. There's going to be telesurgeons where you can actually perform surgery at a distant site, uh, not being there, but through um, uh, almost like a telemedicine. There's now this big surge on big data, and so bio, bioinformaticians are going to be very, very important. And what that data uh, is going to help shape how we actually look at how we deliver healthcare. Uh, something that's new, a uh, little bit controversial, and there's cryopreservation specialists. Wow. So those uh, uh, people who believe that they would like to be frozen in time to be reinvigorated uh, at a later time. So that's a, an interesting one. There's also going to be um, students and, and practitioners that are called custom implant organ designers, where they can actually help on organ transplantation teams on picking the actual organs um, that will be needed. There is an end-of-life therapist to help uh, not only, you know, we, we have it for early childhood care, but we don't have it for end-of-life. Uh, there are going to be genetic counselors because the whole issue of genetic counseling and mapping the chromosomes and, and uh, understanding what what the genetics say will be important for later on, um, whether unlocking or actually blocking the release of expression of genes. There's going to be health specialties profession, especially looking at the marriage between Western medicine and alternative medicine, uh, and so it's the conventional versus alternative. Although, depending upon what part of the world you are, those terms can be flipped. Mm -hmm. uh, there'll be healthcare navigators, um, basically professionals who help you navigate through a very complicated system. And the last is a, a resurgence of a, a very ancient art um, that was really uh, depicted many, many years ago, maybe in the 17th century, and that's medical scribes. And huh. I'll talk a little bit later about uh, the whole profession of uh, being a medical scribe. Sorry, what was number one again that you said? Number one was a medical roboticist. Okay, can you tell me about what so, that is? So that is someone who will actually help out with um, the actual insertion of robots in the hospital setting. Mm -hmm. So we see this often in Asia where you can actually go and have your blood draw done by a robot. A robot will come to your room. Mm -hmm. You'll you'll be able to um, basically swab up and place your arm into a, a receptacle and the robot will actually do your blood draw. Right. And then would 
would that one robot be used for that one function or would you would it be able to do multiple things? I've seen robots that are very unidimensional, mm-hmm. one function. I've seen others that have a mosaic of functions. So not only can this robot um, withdraw blood, but it may be even able to administer the flu vaccine or um, may able to remove stitches and sutures. So a few years down the line, we have robots that can potentially do these tasks at the bedside or at a pharmacy even. So um, then what happens to the nurses who usually do those jobs now? So it's interesting. Throughout history, um, when we talk about AI and artificial intelligence and robots, um, there has been a reduction in job function Mm -hmm. to actual professions. However, those professions are now used more strategically uh, for other things. So a nurse can spend a lot more time cognitively with a client and not do the procedure. So... For anyone who is listening who who may hear about more robots being used in healthcare or more automation and and instinctively worry that that might mean not the end of but less of the human touch aspect of healthcare. Mm-hmm. You're kind of saying the opposite here. You're saying actually it would free up nurses to spend more time in that face-to-face time with patients and oh, Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh it's um it's actually in a funny roundabout way uh, it's getting back to the nursing profession. But the, the role of big data, can you tell me more about that? So um, we, we see it every day today, uh, and we just don't realize what we're doing. But by placing our Fitbits on and by allowing a machine type to understand your uh, whereabouts, what you eat, how you sleep, all the issues, all the areas that Fitbits uh, take into account, there's a huge registry and repository of all that information. That information is important because in essentially every human being that is wearing that Fitbit, identity secured, mm-hmm. is actually supplying information to big companies, big pharma, um, big analytic companies to then fashion what the next wave of medical devices will be. I could see one day where all of us will have a chip implanted. And in the Nordic countries, it's begun Mm. where your health record you carry with you all the time because it's chipped inside you. Right. And so this is what's important. This is what the bioinformaticians will be able to extract. And do you see a huge, you know, in your opinion, see a huge kind of explosion in potential jobs in that area uh, compared to like what is it like now i do because um we, we see it actually in business uh, with a um an area called business analytics mm-hmm. and that's really to shape the marketplace in terms of consumer demands and what consumers are looking for it'll be the same thing in terms of health right. and so um the individuals who are going to be dealing with the biostatistics and but will be helping sequester the data necessary for large companies to start producing devices and even um, hospital visit-like durations and waiting times based on prognostification of an ordeal of an illness. Can you tell me more about jobs that may have to shift or change or may not exist in 50 years? So if we take the experience of a medical doctor, we now see that the pharmacist is able to actually do a lot more 
than what they used to do in terms of dispensing pills or actually uh, using their apothecaries to actually make the preparations. They're now injecting. They're now prescribing certain drugs. So every profession along the line has had scope creep and something's happened. But all in all, what it is basically is there is no way with the infrastructure that we have and the human resource power that you could deliver a top-rate service to everybody out there. Right. Case in point, the flu season. I mean, when you go into the doctor's office and there's a waiting line of 150 people waiting for the vaccination or for the sequelae of having the flu, I mean, you need other professionals to step up with a scope of practice so that you can lessen the burden on the medical system. Mm-hmm. And, and what about in terms of people who may not be dealing with patients face-to-face? Um, do you see any of those uh, positions changing? I'm thinking like from ranging from hospital cleaners to um, people who are building prosthetic uh, pieces. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, or dentists. Yeah, so I'll give you a good example of uh, around the world what's happening. Yeah. So I do a lot of work in China, and currently in China, um, it's very, very interesting because when I left five years ago to visit China in terms of denturism, I believe by what we had created here in Toronto was state-of-the-art. And lo and behold, when I got to China, I walked into the Suzhou General Hospital, went to their Department of Stomatology, which is their Department of Dentistry, and I visited there the way that they fabricate dentures. Well, we were fabricating dentures the old way. We were setting teeth and articulating the, the two plates, maxilla and mandibular plates. Whereas in China, individuals were sitting in a chair. They were hooked up digitally, intraorally and extraorally. The information, the data was sent to another center. The center was connected to 3D printers. And lo and behold, three hours later, the client was walking out with their dentures. So the question is, so what happens to the denturist? Well, how long would it take here comparatively? Here, uh, from a student's point of view, we have the client come back at least four or five times over a three to four month period to set the dentures. But the question is, what happens to those denturists along the way? China still has the same amount of dentures, but now what they're doing is focusing on the realignment of the primary denture. In other words, the denture is already seated. However, now a dentist, a denturist will actually come and work with the facial features and look at the pressure points and to reduce that. So they're on the minor fine tuning. They're hmm. not on the fabricating of the denture, which is highly labor intensive. And is that... Uh, 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 what did you, sorry, how did you phrase that again? The uh, the realignment of the denture? Right. Is that kind of still done in the old school way? Like I, I Ours? Yeah. Yes. No, but even in China, when um, you have someone go yeah, for the second visit. Yeah, except, except that it's, um, you know, it's much more precise because you have a, a radiographic digitized uh, piece that you can study prior to seeing the client. Right. And remember in China too, which is interesting, people are traveling vast miles and, 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 and traversing cities to get to these centers to have their dentures done they can't keep on doing that so they have to come spend the day and leave scalability is everything my wife and i were very we were marveled at this that we would go to the pharmacy there would be 25 people wide 
25 people deep as the first cohort of people to the pharmacy and not anybody spent more than three minutes in line. You would submit your card from your doctor, electronic card. You'd walk down an aisleway and you would see in the background how the pharmacy works. It almost looks like the perpendicular view of Amazon floor with all the boxes. We certainly can steal from them great ideas. I don't think we have such a, a huge need. But quite frankly, I wouldn't mind being able to get my script filled within five minutes. No, no, I wouldn't either. And can you tell me, was there anything in um, elder care that you saw there? Yeah, so el- elder care is a huge concern for mainland China and for actually the Pan-Asian world because um, modern day now is children are educated they are leaving so the parents are left behind Mm -hmm. in china in particular there was the one child rule so there's only the one child they are building huge centers for elder care but they have an infrastructure problem and that is the human infrastructure you either have a maid or you have a nurse there's no personal support worker and that's one of the places that george brown feels that they can actually really help fill the void in china and actually begin to train in regional centers, personal support workers, get trained the trainer, so that a whole bunch of um, people can be served. I mean, in Canada, people say, you want to come and visit my nursing care home? It's quite large. So you would go and six floors high, and there's mm-hmm. maybe 200 residents. And you go, wow, that's, that's pretty big. In China, there are centers of 15 buildings being built, all 74 fly, uh, floors high, with an underground arcade and... and um, promenade of medical services and medical tourism. I mean, so the numbers are, are are huge. Right now in Canada, what are some kind of cool new um, technologies uh, and positions that have cropped up, say, just very recently? That yeah. So there's two in particular. There's one which is uh, it involves uh, telehealth, telesurgery, and that is being able to conduct surgery. Uh, especially for our northern partners that don't have the luxury of urban centers and urban hospitals, for doctors to actually perform surgeries through a robot. So they'd be here in downtown Toronto. They'd be um, through controllers, but surgery would be done up in northern Ontario. Right. Uh, And so that's here already. Remember that, so there's two jobs here. So medicine... You know, think about this. So medicine is being performed through telehealth and telesurgery. Yeah. However, you're going to need specialized humans to actually help fix the machines. And so that's a whole production of another kind of service. So as I said before, as... So technicians, essentially. Yeah, as robots take over, somebody's got to take care of the robots. robots. Exactly. So... um, Newton's third law of thermodynamics. For every action, there's a reaction. And that's uh, one of them. So, you know, we often say that uh, um, uh, people are sometimes often scared about the change. But we often say, uh, and we use this moniker that, you know, you have to respect the past, but you have to embrace the future. Right. And so it doesn't mean that, so given the case in point of the dentures, you're not throwing away that past. You're just retooling them to embrace the future. And I think that that um, addresses probably a big fear a lot of people have in a lot of industries. You know, the robots are going to take over and we're going to lose our jobs and, mm-hmm. you know, 
and where in fact it, they actually could free people up to do more human right. work, you know? Right. And service a whole much more swath of people. Mm. So you wouldn't have to wait three weeks for your repair person. And, and this has nothing to do with uh, robots, AI, or automation, but um, cryogenics. It's funny because... I ask. No, uh, listen. Uh, if you watch the news lately, you actually have a surgeon in Russia trying to do what's called a head transplant. I mean, nothing is sacred anymore. So basically, people are... This whole movement of cryotherapy, cryogenics is big business and in the states i like to believe that there are centers in los angeles where, where people are preserving their bodies all right so to be reawoken at another time when cures come for certain things or how we can start life again let's just let's just riff on that one let's like imagine that becomes a thing and then like what are the what is the potential job that could come out of that it could be like the the reanimation therapist or something it could it could there's, there's lots of um you know there's lots of possibilities you can extract a whole bunch of different <laughs> pathways this is kind of a broad question but if you had um words of advice or words of reassurance and i know what we talked about earlier kind of speaks to this but for someone who's working in the field in the sector who might be concerned about the future but so what, what would you yeah so there? i i say that's um you know i often counsel students here at the college i counsel my own children i practice the same way you're always in shape for retraining you're always learning mm -hmm. and so um jobs will come and go professions will transform and morph um, but you're always on that continuous cycle uh, of learning. It's time to take a look at the future WAN ads. We're going to ask our guests to give us an outline of a job that doesn't exist yet. According to the Institute of the Future, a nonprofit think tank based in Palo Alto, California, 85% of jobs that will exist in 2030 have not been invented. Okay, Corey, what have you got for us? What job do you think will be in demand in the future? The medical scribe. What will a medical scribe do? Technical tasks, such as entering medical information into an online database. Clerical tasks, as writing, such as writing down inf medical information into a medical record system. Organizing tasks, such as organizing patient charts. But they must definitely be able to do it and have typical responsibilities that would include Entering medical records into a portal, such as the electronic health record, the EHR. Charting the doctor and patient encounters, such as documenting patients' medical concerns, primary, initial, and secondary complaints. Writing letters, such as referral letters for doctors. Helping with e-prescribing, such as electronically prescribing medicine. And keeping track of medical testing times, making sure patients get the results in a timely manner, and make sure a small uh, synopsis is done for the doctor uh, with the medical uh, information. So it seems like it's a very, very, um, it's a very crucial job to the proper functioning of an office. What skills will you need for this job? 
I would suggest is, first of all, it can actually be anybody that has already some sort of medical information or medical programming behind them. Mm -hmm. But I also believe that students can come out of high school, definitely have biology and and the lexicon of medical terminology, and actually enter into a two-year diploma or advanced diploma filled with medical terminology, uh, nomenclature, uh, and the um, history and public health system and and all the uh, programming that you would need to educate yourself to be the doctor's right-hand person. That's cool. And do they get to use a quill? Yeah. <laughs> well, now, now it's iPads. But actually, we can actually, they, they can actually probably win the quill award if they do a good job. <laughs> That's a wrap on this episode of Work Shift. What did you think? Want to share your thoughts on the future of work in healthcare or another industry? Have you been affected by technological shifts in your career? Tell us about it. Email us at workshift at georgebrown.ca. And be sure to tune into episode three when we talk about the future of the business and finance world. This podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at George Brown College. We want to thank Dr. Corey Ross for sharing his thoughts with us today. It's the end of your work shift. Until next time. Thank you.